Good morning, everybody. My name is Chris. I'm one of the pastor elders here and uh, executive pastor, and I uh, get opportunity from time to time to preach, so I'm, I'm really looking forward this morning to opening our text to Hebrews chapter 2 and expositing the scripture this morning. So if you have your Bibles with you, please turn there, Hebrews chapter 2. We're going to be in the, the second half of that chapter, verses 10 through 18 this morning. If you don't have a Bible, we have plenty supplied there in the back next to the sound booth. Um, grab one of those um, and, uh, and turn to Hebrews chapter 2. And if you don't own a Bible, then you certainly are free to le- keep that and, uh, as our gift for you this morning. So um, let me just summarize um, as you're turning there where we've been so far in our study of, of Hebrews. Uh, the unnamed author of this book, this letter, opens up by claiming that Jesus is the eternally existent, unique Son of God and that he's the actual, he says, he's the radiance of the glory of God and that he was in the beginning with God, the Father, when the world was created. He's unlike any created being because he is precisely the creator of everything and the sustainer of all things. And that includes Jesus' supremacy over the highest order of spiritual beings that we know of, which are namely angels. So the author of Hebrews is making this, this, this stark contrast, this distinction between the creator and the creation and the relationship between the two. And by nature, the, the creator is transcendent over creation. And the author goes on to substantiate that claim by pointing to seven uh, different Old Testament passages that Jesus is superior to angels. I'm not going to go into details about what those are, um, but I certainly want to point you, direct you to our sermon uh, sermon series online so you can check out those, those previous sermons. But suffice it to say that Jesus is greater than angels, right? And that's the main point in the purpose of the letter that Jesus is greater. That he, and the author is, is, is making it crystal clear from the very outset of the letter that the purpose of this letter, and this is going to be the, the lens through which we understand this, this, this book, so it's, keep this in mind. This is the, the purpose of the letter. The purpose is to declare the supremacy, the, su- the sufficiency and superiority of Christ as an exhortation to remain faithful in the midst of persecution. So as we have already talked about the recipient of the letter, we're under harsh and severe persecution. They were being tempted, therefore, in the midst of that persecution to, to walk away from, to... to uh, to, to abandon their faith in Christ and to go back to the former practices of, of Judaism. And that's why after he declares the, the supremacy of Christ, the author is exhorting his readers to pay close attention to his words. He's appealing to them, in essence, to say, don't drift away. You know the majesty and the glory of Christ. You've trusted the gospel. You've trusted in the good news of Christ's atoning work. Remain steadfast in the hardship and remember that there's coming a day when you'll experience complete restoration. The glory of man that was given to him at the beginning of creation by his creator, it was corrupted by sin, but that's going to be restored. Looked at that early in this chapter. And so we're gonna see that paradise lost is going to eventually become paradise restored. And that's a guarantee And that's a guarantee because as we saw in verse 9 last week, as Pastor Luke closed, he said, Jesus has suffered death so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. So when the world saw the cross, the world saw the cross as defeat, but it was actually the complete opposite. The opposite is true, that the cross was victory. 
And the authors get expound on that point this morning by showing us that, that, that there's a necessity to Christ's incarnation by his coming in the flesh. And that's, and that, and that's the, the context in which he died as a as perfectly uh, son of God, but also as, as a complete hum, hum, human in uh, Christ, the, uh, the God in flesh, in human, in the incarnation. So that's going to be the, the, the main point of the text this morning is that there's a necessity to the incarnation. So let's read from Hebrews chapter 2 this morning, verses 10 through 18. So hopefully you've had time to, to turn there already. So hear the word of the Lord this morning. For it was fitting that he, for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of your congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise took, partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. That's the word of the Lord this morning. So for those who are taking notes this morning, we're going we're to look through this for our scripture lesson this morning, and we're going we're to see it in four points, four movements. First, we're going to see Jesus as our perfect pioneer, then Jesus as our beloved brother in verses 11b through 13. Third, Jesus is our definite deliverer, and then lastly, Jesus is our propitiatory high priest. And don't worry, we're going to talk about what the propitiation means, it's a it's a long word, a big word, but it's an important concept to understand. Uh, it's the very center of the gospel. So let's, let's look at first, though, what it means for Jesus to be our perfect pioneer. Turn to verse 10 and 11 there. As I said last week, we ended in verse 9, which states that Jesus was crowned with glory and crowned with honor because of the suffering of death. And now the author is telling us something different, that the suffering was somehow fitting or to use another word, it was appropriate that the founder of our salvation should be made perfect through suffering. Let me read it again. For it was fitting, it was appropriate that he, that is God the Father, for whom and by whom all things exist and bringing many sons to glory should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. The founder of our salvation there is an unmistakable reference to Jesus Christ. But first, I think it's important to realize and to remember that it was God the Father who first sent the Son to accomplish the mission of salvation. It was within the character, the nature of God for him to self, God the Father to send Jesus as our means of salvation. And it was also within the, the character and the nature of Christ himself to take the way of suffering as a way of accomplishing the Father's plan. And so we can see here that there's a, a unity between the, God the Father and God the, the Son 
in salvation. Just as there was unity in the creation of the world and the creation of the universe, now there's also uniformity in bringing sons to glory. It was the Father's divine purpose to bring these sons to glory, to make a people of themselves from rebellious, sinful humanity. That he was going to make a people for himself from those who had been corrupted by sin, who rebel against him. And he, and he planned redemption, and he, he's the one who initiated this eternal plan by sending the Son, Jesus Christ. So it's interesting that God who is holy and just, whose, whose wrath is, is kindled against sinners, is also the God of mercy. He's bringing many sons to, glor- to glory. He's the one who's glorifying. It's his salvific work. It's, it's his work of salvation. It's not the work of, of man in cooperation with God somehow, but instead we see it's actually an act of divine cooperation between God the Father and God the Son. And it's a gift that's been given to us to receive. So God's mission is to bring many sons to glory, to, to redeem sinful people and to make his sons and daughters those who were once enemies of his, and that was accomplished through Jesus. So God plans, we saw God the Father, he's the one who plans, he's the one who sends, he is the one who initiates salvation, and Jesus is, the, as we're seeing here, the founder, or another word is trailblazer, or pioneer of salvation for those who trust in him. And just so we get an understanding of what that means what, for Jesus to be the pioneer, the trailblazer, let me just give you an illustration. It's like a, like a hiker, right, who goes up and goes through the trouble of bushwhacking through a, a, a mountain that has, no, uh, that has no trail. It's treacherous, right? It's tough because there's, there's been no tr- trail there. And there's thick brush that it started out as just being an irritation is now quickly becoming frustratingly painful as he's making his way and trekking up this, this hillside. But when he finally gets to the peak of the mountain, he sees that this breathtaking view and it made it all worthwhile going up that mountainside. And then the next time, he's bringing those others who didn't go with him the first time with him and and they're now able to go up a marked trail and they're able to get up there much easier than he did because they didn't have to go through all the suffering of bushwhacking up there to begin with. So similarly, Jesus has, in a sense, blazed the route to glory for us. He is the way, as he says. He is the truth. He is the life. He experiences the the pain and suffering for us so that we could be welcomed by God the Father as his adopted sons and daughters. So the question is, do, do you recognize Jesus as the only way to God the Father? That he is our only hope of salvation, He's the only one who could deliver, deliver us from sin, from Satan, from death. So my appeal to you is if you haven't, to, to humble yourself and to follow Jesus, the pioneer, the perfect pioneer of our salvation. But what does it mean, look back at the text, that Jesus was made perfect through suffering? Uh, the Greek word here that's used for, for perfect is make adequate or to make completely effective. We know that Jesus was sinless, that he he was morally perfect from eternity past, so he didn't have to be perfected from sin in any way. It was instead that his suffering was the necessary means to make effective, to, to effectuate God's plan to bring many sons to glory. One commentator put it this way, which I thought was helpful. 
He says, quote, The Lord Jesus did not need to be made perfect morally, for he was always that. As the unbroken tablets of the law were placed in the Ark of a Covenant, so did the unbroken law of God reside in Christ. But he did, not, but he did need to be made ministerially perfect, end quote. So in other words, although Jesus was inherently righteous, he, he needed to exercise that righteousness through conscious, active obedience to God's law. So Jesus was made perfect through suffering means that he was, because of his obedience, was fully qualified to redeem humanity from sin because as the God-man, he was perfectly obedient to the Father and to his will. And Jesus fulfilled that mission. He, he accomplished all that was required to accomplish God's plan of salvation. Another word here that, that the author uses in verse 11 here is the word uh, sanctification or sanctify, those who are the sanctified and the sanctifier. And sanctification means to, to set aside for holiness or to consecrate for holiness. And that's exactly what we sinners need. We need to be, uh, we need to be sec- uh, sanctified or made holy to be, in order to be reconciled to a holy God. We need to be made holy and righteous just the way that he is. And as Jesus being the, the pioneer of our f- salvation, Jesus has paved the way through his righteous life. He was tempted in very real ways and, and through real acts of conscious, intentional obedience, he had fulfilled the Father's will. And it's only now through faith in his righteousness, in his righteous life, in his atoning work on the cross that we can be saved from our sins and, and to become adopted children of God. So let's, let's turn now to the second point this morning as we, as we see what that, what that looks like and how that's, that's orchestrated. It says here in verses 11, for he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children that God has given me. So those who are in Christ as we're reading here, are his beloved brothers and sisters. Have you ever thought of Jesus in that way? Our identity has been radically changed from being once enemies of God, now brothers and sisters, fellow children with Jesus, with God the Father. We're children of God, brothers and sisters with Christ. We're sanctified saints. And that's that's a present reality right now. It's, it's now a status that we possess here on earth and one that is a promised fulfillment of glorification. That's what glory is. It's, it's, it's the end of salvation, sanctification being the beginning. It's being set apart for true glory one day when we'll be with Jesus Christ himself. And the one source here that the author is referring to is, is God the Father, right? He is the, the, the father of the sanctifier, Jesus, right? And he is the father of those who are being sanctified. So we have a shared identity. We, as Peter says in, in 2 Peter chapter 1, we are partakers of the divine nature. We have a common father. And so what we see here is that the product of the father's and the son's cooperation in, redemptive, in, in their redemptive work, their united redemptive work, is the creation of, 
of a new family. And the author underscores that fact by citing here again three Old Testament references. The first is Psalm chapter 22, which is probably the most uh, well-known or famous of the Messianic Psalms. It opens with the words that Jesus himself cried when he was on the cross, when he said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And from our perspective now, looking back, if you're familiar with, with this psalm, is that we look at this, this, this passage in Psalm chapter 22 and we, we see very um, explicit references to Jesus' beatings and, and his, the, the his brutal crucifixion and all that was leading up to that. In verses 16 through 17 and 18, we see the gambling over Jesus' clothes. So, so if you're like me, you've read this chapter many times before and, and it's, it's, it's really exciting that we can pick out these prophetic nuggets that we see in, in David's psalm here. And I, and I think it's easy for this to happen that, that we look at those particular verses that are these explicit references, these prophetic announcements of the cross and, and we, we take those and we revel in them but then we, we, we abandon the rest of, 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 the, of the chapter. We, we typically stop reading after verse 18 or so and we kind of leave the rest of, of the words in, in David's mouth who's a writer and, and that's t- to miss the point of the entire psalm. But thankfully the, the author here in Hebrews has a robust understanding of that text. He's expounding a little bit more of what that text is about in, in chapter 22 of Psalms. And he reminds us that, that Jesus' suffering, his humiliation was the means of his exaltation and glory. If you go on to read that, that, that's what it ends with. The exaltation of the suffering servant. But because Jesus faithfully endured the sufferings as the incarnate son of God in the flesh, he, per, he, he obtained, he procured our adoption as children of God. And that's why he declares the name of, of, of God to his brothers and sisters as we see. He reveals to them the character of God when he tells them his name. That's what it's referring to. That he's telling about the character and the glories of God to his brothers and sisters. But not as those who, know, who, who need to fear God the Father, but now as, as his cherished brothers and sisters that, that, are, that have a a new, unique kinship and unity as children of God who have experienced now, instead of the, the wrath of God, the, the love of God the Father. And then we see in the, in the second part of, the, of that same verse there that Jesus leads his brothers and sisters in congregational praise to the Father. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. The word congregation here is, is actually ecclesia, which is the Greek word that is also used oftentimes, frequently, over and over again in the New Testament to refer to the church. So, so Jesus is identifying with his people. He's referring to them as his, his people, his congregation, the church. He calls his church brothers and sisters. And he then goes on to lead them in congregational singing and hymns to the praise of glory, to the praise of the glory of God the Father. It's amazing. Have you ever thought of Jesus as, as being our worship leader in that way? And then interestingly, the next two 
references here, he goes to other very important messianic texts in, in, in Isaiah. They're a little bit harder to understand how, how they work here. It took some time to really uh, to, to read over and study and, and truly understand what was going on here. But um, the, the reference here that he's making, uh, this author, is in Isaiah chapter 18, uh, chapter 8, verse 17 and 18. Here, here's, here are the original verses in those two verses in Isaiah. It's, uh, Isaiah writes this, I will wait for the Lord who was hiding his face from the house of Jacob, and I will hope in him. Behold, I and the children whom the Lord has given me are signs and portents in Israel from the Lord of hosts who dwells on Mount Zion. Like I said, this is a, another messianic text because this chapter, chapter 8 of Isaiah, is, is sandwiched in between chapter 7 where we see this, uh, this announcement that the virgin will conceive and bear a son whose name shall be called Emmanuel, God with us. And then we see in, in chapter 9, the chapter after 8, it says, talks about the, the birth of that child whose name will be called Wonderful Counselor, the Mighty God, the Everlasting Father, the Prince of Peace. So how does this though, th- these verses in chapter 8, fit into that picture? How do they pertain to Jesus? Well, Isaiah's writing in a time when, when God has sent Assyria to invade Jerusalem as a means of his, of his judgment against them. Like Isaiah has called to kings and to the people of Israel to repent of their sins, to, to, to fall down before their, their God in, in humble obedience and repentance, but all those calls have gone ignored and unheard. And so Isaiah, though, seeing what's going to take place, God's judgment is coming, he purposes himself in the midst of that, of what he knows is going to be difficult and hardship for his people and for himself in persecution and in judgment, he is placing his faith and trust in the God of judgment. Jesus, in the same way, trusted God the Father in his plan, even though it meant that he was going to partake of human weakness and suffering and temptation and ultimately go to the cross. And then the author goes on to quote the next portion of Isaiah's words. Isaiah is so confident, this, the, the purpose of, of these is to show that his, his confidence is in, is in Christ, his confidence is, is, is in God. He, he even goes to name his, his two sons, which I'm gonna butcher their names, so I'm just not even gonna say them, but what the, his two sons' names are uh, mean remnant, a remnant will return, and the second son's name means hasten, booty, speed, spoil, meaning that it's is the, the coming of the Assyrian invasion is the, is the means by which God is going, to, uh, is going to bring judgment upon his people. So in the, in the names of his, of his two sons that he's give, given them, even in his own name, which means Yahweh saves, he is appealing in confidence to, to God's will. Isaiah then goes on to not only just name his two sons, as he does, but presents them to Israel, which is interesting. He, he, he's actually presenting them to Israel with pride, knowing that, that God's grace is, is gonna be, he's gonna be faithful, he's gonna be gracious to them, even in his judgment, and that a God-fearing remnant is going to survive this. And, I, and Isaiah's identifying himself with that remnant, with Israel's remnant that will be saved. And in a far greater way now, we see in this 
chapter of, of Hebrews, that Jesus presents himself now along with his children that God has given him with solidarity and with affection and with pride. It's a, it's a glowing confidence in his father and it's also for us a banner of his love as his adopted children. It's a display to the world that God's glorious and savoring work was accomplished through the faithful son of, of God, Jesus Christ. And it reminds me, you gotta forgive this, this reference or this, or this illustration because I've got young children in the house. My daughter's eight, my son is six. Um, but it reminds me of that great Disney movie, right? Are you ready? The Lion King, right? Where Rafiki takes Simba, the young Simba, and presents him atop Pride Rock, right? So in a same way, in a similar way, or in a greater way than obviously Disney could ever show, right? Jesus is holding up to the world his brothers and sisters that he's purchased by his blood. And imagine what this, this must have been like to the original hearers, the first century hearers of this, of this text, this, this letter that was written to them. They're undergoing persecution, and the writer is reminding them they are the apple of God's eye. That nothing can remove his unconditional love for them. That their suffering, like Jesus' suffering, was purposeful. It was, wasn't meaningless like, like what our, our world today would tell you. Their persecution and ours is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory as Paul says in, in 2 Corinthians chapter 4. Do you see yourselves in that way as a beloved child of God? And do you also view your circumstances similarly that, that these circumstances that we're living in are preparing us for the eternal weight of glory that we will inherit when Christ returns for us? Think on that, meditate on that, revel in that. And notice again the verses here again we see the unmistakable reference to the, the unity, the cooperation, once again, of the Father and the Son in the mission of redemption. Never at odds, always in perfect and complete harmony. The Father plans, the Father gives a, a, a people to the Jesus, the Son, and Jesus obediently humbles himself in the incarnation and he undergoes suffering. He undergoes persecution and abandonment and suffering to bring those sons and daughters that's been given to him the Father to glory. And now, let's look at this amazing way in which Jesus is our definite deliverer from Satan and death. Verses 14 here, we start to see that there's a more explicit description now of the incarnation. Jesus, it says, took on flesh and blood in order to save humanity. He took on real flesh and blood and more than that, it says he, he partook of the same things. That, that means that he took on the full human experience. That he was born humbly and, and he grew in maturity and he, he was tired and he was thirsty and he hungry, he experienced the full range of human emotions and he was also tempted but was without sin. And he even willingly went to death, which every human goes through. In fact, that was the very purpose of his coming, that he was born to die. But we see his death was different. His death was somehow the destruction 
of death itself. Death, you remember, is an enemy. It's a part of the curse of sin. And we're all familiar with the power that death holds over us. We fear death, as it says here. That's, it keeps us in lifelong bondage. And we fear death for a number of reasons. Uh, borrow some here from, from uh, Kent Hughes, one of the, the commentators that, uh, that I was reading this, this week, that we, we, fear the, we fear painful death. We fear separation from, the, from what we know and from, from our loved ones. and We fear the unknown. We fear the sense of not being or the cessation of, of existing. We, we fear everlasting punishment. So there's lots of ways in which we fear death and that fear robs us of joy. No matter how hard we try, there's no way we're gonna cheat death. We can't escape death. And when we realize that, we, we either act in a, a different ways. We either act in a very animalistic way. And by that, I mean that, that we, we scratch and we scrape and we grab at all we can get here and now, we, all that we can possess, anything that's gonna satisfy our, our sinful cravings and appetites to our own detriment, to, to the, at others' expense, and ultimately, in our rebellion against God. So that's, that, that's one way in, w- in which we can act knowing that death is coming, or we could ignore it, try to ignore it as best we can, just long enough until we're actually having to face its reality, that we're going to be face-to-face with its cold, dark stare. But we see that Jesus has overcome death. We saw earlier that we, we were saved by his righteous life. Jesus' obedience and faithfulness to the Father qualified him as a pioneer for our salvation. But now we see that Jesus is also the one who saves us by, from death by his death. And let me slip in a couple things here um, while we're on this, on this topic that the, the Bible reveals who Jesus is and what it means for him to be in the flesh, fully man and fully God. We see the Bible reveals that's what exactly it means to be incarnate, fully God and fully man. That, that's what theologians call the hypostatic union. Jesus was not a mixture of both human and, and, uh, and God and deity. He's not partially God and man. Um, he, he is uniquely the God-man. Had he not become fully human, then he could not have truly died in our place or acted as our sympathetic high priest. We'll see what that means in a moment. He didn't just appear to be man or, or simulate humanity in some way, but he was truly human. And, and in so doing, he also did not cease to be God. He remained entirely God when he humbled himself in the incarnation because no mere human being stained by sin could take upon himself the, the full weight of the, of the sin of humanity, of the entire human race, and properly make atonement. God had to do that. So just as important as it is to, to, to point that out, it's also important to understand that the incarnation is a, is a single unified event. It includes just examples, Jesus' uh, virgin birth. It also includes his perfectly obedient life that we just talked about. It includes the cross, his, his incarnation, the resurrection, the ascension. And it's important I point this out because there are some teachers out there, some pastors out there who will, who will kind of try to make a boiled down Christianity or a mere Christianity that focuses attention on one aspect of the incarnation at the expense of the others. 
They'll say things like this, quote, if somebody can predict their own death and resurrection, I'm not all that concerned about how they got into the world, end quote. Or they'll say, quote, Christianity doesn't hinge on the truth or even the stories around the birth of Jesus. It hinges on the resurrection of Jesus, end quote. That's Andy Stanley for you. Now, that, that sounds maybe kind of good in some ways, uh, that the, the resurrection is, is really important, but it misses the point that each of these different aspects of the incarnation are really inextricably connected to with, with one another, and they together create and form a coherent mission and, and message. That message is called the gospel. And so when we dis, d- diminish either Jesus' humanity or that we diminish uh, his deity, or if we minimize one of the aspects of Christ's ministry and his life in a ministry, that's to mishandle the gospel. It leaves us with an incomplete Jesus, right? And, and without the true Jesus, we don't have the full assurance and the hope of the pioneering work of salvation. We don't have the definite deliverance that we're about to see. We don't have the propitiatory work that the writer of Hebrews is directing his, his readers to, to focus on and to embrace as their hope. So getting back to the text, Jesus, as we saw, conquered death with his real body, with his real blood. He became a real sacrifice in our place. He died the death that we should have died. The payment for our sin was death, but Jesus took upon himself the sins of the world, your sin and my sin, and the only truly innocent person that ever lived died in our place. And we see in his death, his death was the, paid the penalty for our sin. All of the penalty, all of the debt that we owed was paid in Christ as we just sang. And he destroyed death and he destroyed the devil who has the power of death. And what that means is we know that, Jesus, that God himself has the ultimate power over all of life and death. So for what it means for Satan to have the power of death means that, that he is able to incite humans just as he did in the, in, the, in the very beginning in the garden. He has the, the power to incite humans to sin in this, that sin leading to death, the consequence of that sin. So what the author of Hebrews is telling us in this passage is that the readers ought to take heart, the original readers and we ourselves. Even if their persecution meant that it, certain death was coming at the hands of their enemies, they don't need to fear. They shouldn't fear. Why? Because ultimately death is not the end. Death has lost its power. And the same is true for us today. And so I ask, what is, what is our, what is your, what is my coping mechanism for death? Maybe you think it's just not gonna happen to you somehow and, and, you've, and you've deceived yourself into thinking that. Or maybe just, again, ignoring death altogether. Christians are the only ones who can truly and honestly deal with the, with the reality of death because we understand that death is the result of sin and it's the enemy of life. It's our enemy. And yes, each one of us will one day f- face death, but we know that death is not final. Jesus triumphed over death and the devil. And his victory is our victory. So we can have confidence that in the midst of suffering and persecution, that nothing will separate us from the love of God, including death itself. Jesus conquered death and Satan for us. He's, he's our deliverer. 
And yes, we're gonna continue to experience the, the painful realities of sin, the consequence of sins and Satan's temptations and yes, even death itself one day. It's gonna happen to all of us. But ultimately, they're rendered powerless. They are, they are mortally wounded foes that will one day com- be completely annihilated, be completely vanquished. And that's why Paul can write these words in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death, where's your sting? The sting of death is sin, the power of sin is death, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, amen? amen? And then we see in verse 16, the author is reminding us once again that it's not for angels that Jesus died. His solidarity is, is with humanity. He who was greater than the angels, who for a time became lower than the angels, that he, it means he intentionally limited himself by taking on the burden of humanity in order to save the offspring of Abraham. If you were here for our study of Galatians, you've heard that phrase before. That's referring not to the necessarily the genealogical descendants of Abraham, those who are his, his descendants ethnically, but his spiritual descendants. That that is, that those who are like Abraham are those who have been saved by faith in Christ alone, as we saw in Galatians chapter three. So if you, haven't, if you, didn't, if you weren't here for that series, then I, I would highly recommend you check that out on our website as well. The true offspring of Abraham, as we see, are those who have trusted in Christ's righteousness and his triumph over death and Satan by going to death himself. And they have trusted in Christ alone as their, also as their propitiatory high priest, which is our, our final point this morning as we turn um, to the last section of this passage this morning. So in closing, the author is going to drive home the point that the incarnation, Christ becoming man in the flesh, was fitting. It was appropriate. But also he's saying now it was necessary. He says here that Jesus had to be made, had to be made like his brothers in every respect. Why is that the case? Well, if you look back at the verses we just looked at, 10 through 16, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect in order to sanctify us so that we could be adopted into the family of God and to destroy the power of death and Satan and to deliver us from the one who who possesses the the power of death, Satan himself. But, But all these wonderful gifts that we just read about, all these glorious benefits are all predicated on the fact that Jesus was the one mediator between God and man. And without a great high priest, we would be eternally destined for eternal death. But in Christ, we see we have all that we need. Therefore, it says, we, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. The original recipients of the letter would have immediately recognized what that meant. In the days before Christ, God had established this office of the great high priest. Priest, but also the high priest. And he was the one who would stand as a mediator between God and man. Holy God, sinful man, one mediator between the two. And his role was to represent both parties. And he acted as that that mediator, that that go-between. And for the original office, the original audience here is they're hearing those words. Uh, they saw the, that the, the works of the priests were actually still going on around them. 
the temple was still very active and, and, and the sacrifices system was still going on. And they were being tempted because in the midst of the persecution, they were being tempted to, to, to abandon Christ, like I said, and, and to go back to these, these priestly rites that were still going on. And it was very easy to do so because they were still ongoing. But the, the writer here is reminding them again that Jesus is better, that he is the true high priest, and his atoning work is the all-sufficient work of the great high priest. Because Jesus is the incarnate God-man, Jesus is the one that's uniquely qualified to act as that, that one mediator, the one to, that can properly represent God and man because he is the God-man. He is eternally God. He can represent God because he is truly human in the flesh. He can represent humanity. But why is this mediation even necessary to begin with? Why did Jesus, you might be asking, all right, and it might not be true, but why is it that Jesus went through all the trouble of coming in the flesh so that he could represent God and man? And my answer to you would be the gospel. Right? Beginning with, with Adam's disobedience, the entire human race was, was, was plunged into sin. So then, therefore, after that, every descendant, including you and me, are, we are now sinners who are willfully in rebellion against our Creator. And although we were created in the image and likeness of God, that's, that's true, that, that, that image, that likeness, has, has, been, crack, has been cracked somehow. It's been, it's been corrupted by sin. So by nature itself, not just behavior, but by nature and behavior, we are sinners. And that's a universal problem. It's, it's the human condition. And God, however, is holy. He's unstained by sin. And sin is an actual affront. It's an offense to him. It's more than just being simply distasteful. It's, it's, it's infuriating to God. It's, it's, and his wrath is not a capricious wrath. It's not, he's not just being some temperamental God. He is holy and just, and so sin, which is that blatant, rebellious disregard of God's sovereign rule and, and, and against his perfect law, that occasions his wrath. That's important to understand. And so it's not only just a universal problem, but it, it, it's, it's a generational problem. As I said, it started with Adam and it's gone all the way through the generations. And sin has been that separator between us and God for millennia. But God has been gracious even from the beginning by providing a way to satisfy his wrath to redeem sinful humans and we see that uh, we see that scene uh, uh, shown forth in, in a very uh, practical and real way in the role of the high priest the role that is actually steeped I don't know if you've thought about this before it's being steeped in the mercy and the grace of God according to God's prescription every, every year a high priest of Israel would, would sacrifice a, a sacrificial lamb, take a, a perfect lamb, spotless lamb. And that lamb's blood would be shed, would, be, would temporarily cover the sins of, of himself, his own sins that he need to be atoned for, but also for the sins of the entire people, all of Israel. And therefore, by doing so, that would propitiate God's wrath, that would remove God's wrath, that would satisfy his wrath against sin and against sinners. So we see God was gracious and faithfully supplying year after year a priest and, and a sacrificial lamb. But the fact that Jesus came in the flesh to be perfectly, to be that perfect high priest between God and man shows that that, that system that God had given, though 
worked and, and was his grace and, and it certainly satisfied the wrath of God it was, was inadequate. It, it, it was ordained for a time, but it was always pointing to the genuine artifact of redemption. It was pointing to the true and ultimate high priest and the true and ultimate sacrificial lamb that Jesus is that ultimate high priest. He is the, he's the one high priest that all the other high priests before him were typifying. He is the, the, the perfect high priest in that his perfect life, his substitutionary death on the cross, he showed us the, that mercy and the grace of God was faithfully executed but the, by what he did, his father's plans were, were, were faithfully executed. He is the, the one single, once and for all times, sacrifice that for, will forever remove the stain of sin and the wrath of God. And as we read already before in the beginning of this, this letter, that after making purification for sins, he, that is Jesus, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. His morning work is finished. And it was accepted by God, but that doesn't mean, though, there's, a little, there's one last thing I want to point to. That doesn't mean that now that he's sitting by the right hand of God, that now somehow his ministry is, is inactive or, 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 or done in a, in a sense that there's still, ongoing, there's still an ongoing portion to what Christ has accomplished for us. He's going to continue to help us in our temptation. And that's what the, the original readers here needed, needed so, so much to hear. They needed to, to, to know that they had help. That they had help in the midst of their persecution and suffering. In the midst of that, they were being tempted away. But, but Jesus is, is, is the one that they can turn to. That they can cling to. Because he was first tempted before us, that he had the strength to overcome temptation, that he overcame Satan's temptation to forsake the cross. And now he is empowering us through his Holy Spirit to overcome temptation as well. That's the ongoing sanctifying work that, was, that was, we saw back in, in, in verse 11. Jesus is, is faithful in securing our souls, but he's also in the process of progressively sanctifying us by making us more holy by, by helping us to, to grow and cultivate maturity into greater Christ-likeness. He knows what it means to experience sin or, or I should say the temptation to sin. He knows what it, he knows what it means to experience the temptation to sin and, and he gives more just than just a sympathetic ear but he also gives a strong right arm of deliverance and transformation. And that should bring us comfort today as well. Christ is not only just sentimentally attached to his creation, but he graciously acts in their behalf for their good. So we see Jesus' incarnation was, was necessary for him to accomplish the plans and purposes of God. It was the Father's will to send Jesus. It was Jesus' good pleasure to secure our redemption and to offer us the full benefits of what it means to be adopted sons and daughters through his mediatorial work on the cross. Jesus became like us so that, he could, that we could be saved from sins and made fellow heirs with him in glory. So as I'm closing now, I want to ask just these last few words, last few questions. Have you trusted in Christ's atoning work? That's an invitation this morning, an invitation to respond to the gospel, the good news of what Christ has done is all-sufficient work. Have you trusted in him? And, and I, I, 
I'm appealing to you and and I'm begging you to repent of your sins and trust in Jesus, the pioneer of your salvation. Maybe you have trusted Christ, but you've forgotten that you're a beloved child of God. Let this text this morning remind you that Jesus has removed the shame of sin by imputing the righteousness of his righteousness to your account. And that now he now affectionately calls you his brother or sister. Or maybe this morning you're feeling gripped by the fear of death. Maybe you're feeling oppressed or overburdened by Satan's temptation to drift away from Christ. Remember that Jesus is your definite deliverer who has conquered death and Satan and he helps us in our distress to overcome temptation by the power of his spirit. And lastly, maybe you're frightened by the talk of the wrath of God. Maybe your perception of God is that God is up in heaven who's eternally and maybe perpetually angry with you because of your sin. But be comforted this morning by the reality and the finality of Jesus' wrath-absorbing sacrifice in your place. He is our all-sufficient propitiatory high priest. He has satisfied the righteous demands of God so that you could be forgiven, that we can all, who place our faith and trust in him, be welcomed into the family of God. Amen. Father, thank you again for this wonderful word that you've given us this morning. We thank you for the sacrifice of of Jesus, your son. That sacrifice began with him just taking on sin, uh, by taking on flesh, by humbling himself. And all through his life, we see as we read the text, scripture, and the accounts and the gospels that he was tempted to abandon the cross. Even in the garden as he, as he sweat blood, He was tempted to abandon the Father's mission, but yet he purposed his heart and he executed it with his positive and conscious obedience to the will of God, to the law of God. By doing so, he he was perfectly righteous the way that we could never be. And he went to the cross for us as that perfect spotless lamb took on the sins of the world, our sins included, so that we could, through his death, his atoning work as our great high priest, be reconciled to God the Father, be unified to the triune God of grace. And so now, Lord, because of his resurrection from the grave as well, we can also be saved from death and its grips, and we can have new life in Christ that begins now, eternal life that begins now as a, not only a quality of life or quantity of life that will happen one day, but a quality of life that begins now because of our unity with Christ. So Lord, help us remember that this morning. The gospel continue to permeate every aspect of our, of our hearts, that every facet not be left as we continue to plumb, uh, plumb the depths of the gospel as it continues to transform us by the power of the Spirit. And it's in Jesus' name we pray, amen.